0: As I'm trying to find Ecclesiastes in my Bible here. Yeah, that's, thank you. I found it. It's still there. Uh, it's been encouraging to me over the last uh, few weeks the number of people that have said to me, I love Ecclesiastes, or, or that's always been my favorite book of the Bible, or particularly of the Old Testament. So that, that makes me excited as I'm, I'm walking through it, and, and I hope you still feel that way when we're done. So... <laughs> What does your what does your heart long for? As, as you look around the world and think about the things that are attractive to you, if 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 money if money was no object and, and ability was no obstacle, what what would you go after? Maybe, maybe, you think, maybe you think huge thoughts in this regard, if money was no object and ability was no obstacle, and you think, you know, I'd love to go buy my own island and just be alone from everybody else, or uh, uh, there are weeks I feel like that, for sure. Uh, or you'd love to own a Fortune 100 company, or, or you'd just love to have a nice house in the mountains, or something like that. But wealth alone, ironically, can only provide a rather cheap joy. So, you know, maybe your thought is, I I would love, I'd love to be a famous athlete, someone who is a champion in your respective sport, or perhaps even considered the greatest of all time. But after... After Tom Brady won his third Super Bowl, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes, and they were asking him to reflect on what it meant to him. And he was thinking about his life, and he said, I'm thinking, is this all there is? There's got to be more than this. Now, if you're a Patriots fan, you realize that meant there's three more titles now, but that's beside the point. Or or maybe that stuff just sounds, frankly, unattractive to you, but you think much more down to earth. Because what we're trying to discern is, what is bringing us pleasure in this world? Where do I find my, my true joy? So maybe just a loving family, or... I don't want to be rich, I just want enough money to pay the bills this month, would be great. A couple of good friends, or just to know that my children are following Jesus. If that was true, I would have joy. The problem is that that even these simpler things, which, which are good, which are very good, and, and a billion more examples, they are unable to ultimately deliver on the pleasure that they promise. We saw, we saw last week in Ecclesiastes that the wisest man of all time pursued wisdom with, with all of his heart, and it only increased his sorrow. But what's amazing about this week's passage is that this same man also happens to be the wealthiest man alive in his day, one of the wealthiest men who has ever walked on the earth, probably the most productive man or one of the most productive men that has ever lived, and by all accounts, perhaps the most sexually prolific man on earth at the time. 700 wives. 300 mistresses, we'll say, to use a sanitized word. But at the end of the day, he is left longing. Longing for something or someone far more satisfying. God once said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13 Or or to say it in a slightly more modern-sounding way, there's only one place ultimate satisfaction can be found. And that is in God himself. Our passage this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. So hear the word of our all-satisfying God. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days, the very few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and... And women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered, All that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Lord, would you now lead us by your Spirit in whatever way you desire? and i ask this through the power of the spirit and in the name of jesus our beloved lord amen so if you if you're looking at the passage with me in ecclesiastes chapter 2 the preacher's purpose is is laid out very clearly in verse 1 i said in my heart come now i will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks as we've kind of meandered our way through kind of a corporate depression as we've, as we've worked through the, the words of the preacher, you might say, hey, this week's got some promise to it. This, at least it sounds a little bit more exciting than, than some of the things that we've had to walk through lately. He says, let me see how much pleasure I can take in. Imagine that for a goal What would it look like to to try to enjoy the things you really want as much as you possibly could? And that's that's what he's doing here. And for him, money is no object. It sounds way better at least than with much wisdom as much vexation. Does it not? The only problem is, spoiler alert, end of verse 1, the preacher says, even his unashamed pursuit of pleasure was ultimately unsatisfying, frustratingly futile, hevel, to use the word that we've been discussing over the past few weeks. Now here's the main point. No matter how pleasurable, nothing is ultimately more satisfying than God. And nothing is truly joyful apart from God. No matter how pleasurable, nothing is ultimately more satisfying than God, and nothing is truly joyful apart from God. Now, the way that Solomon... Organizes his thoughts here is pretty simple. In verses 2 through 8, he's, he's just talking about this pursuit of pleasure. And then in verses 9 through 11, he's just reflecting personally on what he has done. Okay, so the setup's very straightforward. Now, in verse 2, Solomon begins by kind of switching gears from last week. He first tried to pursue wisdom and concluded he who increases knowledge sadly increases sorrow. But since that didn't work, like us, I think he's probably thinking, well, let me try the reverse of this. A little bit of change of pace might be nice. What if I just kind of made light of everything that's happening? I'll just try to laugh my sorrows away. Maybe I'm taking this whole meaning of life thing as the wisest man on the planet. Maybe I'm taking this all a little bit too seriously. But what's the problem with that? The problem is that laughter is a great gift. But if you're always laughing at everything, eventually you just sound like an idiot. We've all known people who just seem juvenile because they never take life seriously at all. Look, there's, you can only laugh at so many YouTube videos without becoming bored yourself or being the most annoying person in the room. That's just the way that it goes. Now, laughter can be a wonderful escape from pain or a welcome break from busyness, but laughter doesn't always correspond with reality. So think about being at a a funeral or a memorial service, for example. I love when there are little ones at a funeral especially ones that are small enough to to kind of be oblivious to what's going on. They're still just kind of going around doing their little kid thing. And almost without exception, people look at them and smile. and, And it brings comfort to us because we see there still is normalcy in the world despite my pain. But what happened if everybody in the service the entire time was just laughing. That wouldn't be a reality that was appropriate at all. It's because life in the world is full of of brokenness and frustration and complexity. So as Solomon reflects on this, he quickly concludes that given the reality of the way that the world is, laughing is especially as a means of fulfilling longing, laughing is insane. Or to use his word, it's mad. Now, as we progress through this pursuit of pleasure, verse 3 is is somewhat fascinating. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So so far, it just kind of sounds like he's saying, hey, Let's all head down to Margaritaville and this is going to be a good time, right? Quite a contrast from last week. But, but his, his thoughts are more refined than that. Look, look at what else he says. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So at least there's some measure of, of temperance or of intentionality with what he's doing here. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So, difficult to determine if if Solomon's just justifying things at the moment, right? He's a little bit self-deceived here as he's thinking about this. But there's a, at least a measure of pointedness to what he's doing. Even as he indulges in wine and And whatever falls into the category of lay hold on folly, right? But this is Solomon still answering the overarching question from the very beginning of the book What gain, what profit, what gain does man have by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? He first went down the path of wisdom, then he kind of ricocheted back towards foolishness, and he's found both of them utterly unsatisfying. Now, if you're a young person in our body, especially if you're one of the youngest people in our body, it's important that you understand this message from Ecclesiastes also. The sooner that you turn away from foolishness and towards wisdom, the better. But wisdom itself cannot save you, nor can it ultimately bring you joy. Those things are found in Jesus Christ alone. But as you come to Jesus and as your joy in Him grows, then you realize, I'm becoming wiser through that process. So the answer is, dig into your Bible so that you might see the glory of Jesus revealed. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes so that you can see that. The Apostle Paul once said in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Just think about that for two seconds. How incredible is that reality? Reality. Now, for our college kids that have been kind of filtering back over the, over the last few weeks as the semester ends, undoubtedly you've seen both wisdom and foolishness on display on your college campuses. You've probably come across people that are brilliant, but tragically lost. If you've been on campus for 10 seconds, you've probably seen the epitome of foolishness displayed at some point by someone as they walk around. But on both ends of the spectrum, there is a desperateness there. A brilliant person who is just lost, or someone who is becoming the poster boy for foolishness. There are longings to be uncovered in their hearts all of which are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus alone. So my encouragement to you is that while you're home, saturate yourself with the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus. And then when you go back to college, just, just, just tell your friends what you've seen. And that would be a good way to share the good news of the gospel with them. Now, uh, verses 4-8. through eight are some of the most impressive but simultaneously self-referenced words found anywhere in the Scriptures. Let me just read a little bit more of that so that you kind of feel the emphasis of it again. Just backing up all the way to verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was vanity I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. I got singers, both men and women. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Then I considered all that I had done. It's almost maniacally self-referenced. Here, Derek Kidner summarizes these verses and says, Solomon created a secular garden of Eden with no forbidden fruit. You can see Solomon doing, or at least maybe delegating or assigning, uh, tasks that Adam could have done in Eden. But in Solomon's garden... It's a secular pursuit because it appears to have been entirely self referenced as opposed to God centered. Uh, to, to do something in a secular way simply means that there's no religious or, or, or spiritual basis for what you're thinking or for what you're doing. It's just I, 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 I. Again and again and again. But this is the motto of modern America in the 21st century. But it's also where we begin to see what's wrong with pursuing pleasure apart from God. Because idolatry can take many forms, but but at its core, at its root, is is self-centeredness these good and powerful desires that God has given us that are to be fixed on Jesus, get all bent and twisted up and curve in onto ourselves. We become infatuated with ourselves or we we consume good gifts as ends unto themselves for our own delight rather than experience them as gifts that display the glory of the one who gave them to us in the first place just kind of processing through this on my own as I'm thinking about my own personal experience, I'm confident that I came to Christ at the end of my freshman year in college where my heart finally came alive and I embraced the good news of the gospel and Jesus became my Lord and my Savior, and that's obviously a big deal. But after that, I realized there was a second work that God was doing in my life. Heart, one that I was completely or almost entirely oblivious to prior to the Spirit actively working. To me, it felt so massive, it it almost felt like a second conversion. It was that God was helping me to die to my own self referenced self. Centeredness. Redundancy intended because that's how bad it was. And, in its place, beginning to reshape my mind and heart in a God-centered direction. Before, Before this happened, joy was brief. Peace was intermittent. But afterwards... Afterwards, when, when instead of thinking that everything that happens revolves ultimately around you, and you realize that all of these things that are happening really are about the greatness of the glory of God Himself, when your eyes eventually come off of yourselves and look to God, then all of the sudden joy feels practically permanent. Now, sometimes that just means... There's enough strength to take one more step in the right direction in the midst of all the chaos. But there are other times when it means the roof just got blown off in any other sense of capacity or intensity for the joy that you've ever experienced prior to that. The way the Westminster divines put the essence of what it meant to be a Christian was that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The way John Piper famously has put it, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. It's what he calls Christian hedonism. The way Solomon's famous father once put it in Psalm 37.4, he said, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now that's not the concept there is not like payback for pure thoughts, right uh, It's the natural outflow of of longing for an all- satisfying joy and finding that joy ultimately in and exclusively connected to God, the God who made us and the God who has redeemed us, the God who has saved us, and the God who sustains us now. This is a theme, I think, that's, that's threaded throughout Ecclesiastes from chapter 1 all the way through the book. And in 19, 19, 1777, a year after the Declaration of Independence was written, John Wesley wrote these words. I began expounding in order the book of Ecclesiastes. I never before had so clear a sight either of the meaning Maybe you've been there as we've been walking through (laughs) Ecclesiastes. Or the beauties of it. Never did I imagine that the several parts of it were in so exquisite a manner connected together. All tending to prove the grand truth that there is no happiness outside of God. I think that may be the most magnificent truth that this incredible book teaches us from beginning to end. No matter how pleasurable, nothing is ultimately more satisfying than God and nothing is truly joyful apart from God. And by that, I don't mean you can't enjoy other things. Sin itself is enjoyable or you would never do it. I'm talking about in an ultimate sense. It's one thing to look at flowers and say they're beautiful in a meadow. It's another thing to worship the God who made them and to see their beauty in light of who He is. What's the difference between being God-centered in your parenting or, or not? One is to say, look at the beautiful flowers. The other one is to say, look at what God has made And how it reflects the beauty of who He is. Same observation. Different thoughts being communicated to others. Now, what becomes so jarring about verses 7 and 8 is what's not mentioned there. He bought male and female slaves. Great possessions, herds and flocks. He gathered silver and gold. He got singers, both men and women. There isn't a hint in any of this that I kind of felt bad for using everyone else to serve my purposes. That is not what he is saying here. He's saying, I did it all. And I still felt unsatisfied. Between wives and concubines, we're talking about a thousand women. Between his laborers and, and workers, there were so many of them, he didn't bother to count them. His herds and his flocks, greater than anyone else in Jerusalem ever. He hired full-time professional singers, both men and women. It does not mean he hired someone for the weekend to sing him a song. It means anytime he wants a song, he goes like this, and people come in and start singing. Any moment of any day of the year. Now, just to get a sense historically of, 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 of what we're talking about with his wealth, because it's, it's just difficult to visualize. This is how it's described in, in 1 Kings 10. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. So I just calculated that real quickly last night, which I think is about so 75 pounds for a talent, 50,000-ish pounds, ounces, 800,000 times 1,230 or so price per gold per ounce right now. That's a little over a billion dollars. Besides that, which came from explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. His army fights with gold-plated shields. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three, Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and at the back of the throne was a calf's head, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. If they find that thing, greatest archaeological find ever, besides every find of the word of God. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver, because silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Aram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore. It's hard to process. Here's what's amazing. Despite this wealth, there are things that we enjoy today, and I don't mean rich people, I mean us, like normal people, that would have left Solomon going, are you kidding me? You push the button on a wall. Your temperature goes up. What degree do you want it to be? Two degrees up? Four degrees down? The humidity, the humidity is perfect all the time. You mean to tell me what? You can have food delivered to your house. Within minutes, Asian, no problem. Italian, sure. Mexican, five minutes away. Solomon had to wait for the next ship to come for that to land on his doorstep. Endless products, all designed to help us feel however we want to feel at any moment on of any day. What would he have thought of? Airplanes. Or cell phones. How much of an advantage would GPS be in fighting another army? Right? Or, or, or weapons. He's a king. He likes some chariots. Can you imagine if he saw a rifle? He would have been in awe of things that we think are fairly Every day. Here's the thing no amount of stuff satisfies us. So we need to think what in this world is specifically alluring to me? What is drawing my heart to it? Or what is my heart drawn to? Is it so strong that, you, that you're willing to sin in order to have it? Or where do you recognize, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, where do you recognize unmet longings in your heart right now? What is stunning about our passage is the person and the power of the experiences that inform Solomon's reflections on his pursuit of pleasure. But, if, despite our modern conveniences, we are left longing, and since Solomon here is clearly left longing, he concludes with these words, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for, my heart, for my, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He's right about that, by the way. So, if you're not entrusting your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, you better find joy in what you're doing now. You better love it because this is as good as it's going to get for you. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, think of what he's just said and what he's just described. All of it was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the the difficult delight of God subjecting the creation to futility and often to frustration for us. Whether we realize it or not, the way the world is leaves us longing for Jesus. The nature of progressive revelation in the Bible is that God reveals more and more of His glory until Jesus walks onto the scene and reveals the glory of God perfectly. What Solomon would have been most in awe of was Jesus Himself. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Therefore, because Jesus possesses the fullness of the glory of God in his person, he is able to fill us completely to satisfy every longing of our heart. He is the one who fills all in all. The miracle of the gospel is that, at least in some measure, this starts now. Paul said in Colossians 2, For in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's exactly what I've been arguing. And then he goes on to say, And you have been filled in him. That is the miracle of the gospel. But how does he do it? How does that work? How does Jesus actually deal with our unfulfilled longings and the unholy ways that we have selfishly pursued those longings apart from God? How does he solve both of those problems? Because they're both a big deal. It's through his, you know the answer his death, and his resurrection. On Calvary, Jesus bore our selfishness and replaced it with his selflessness so that we could have our longings truly fulfilled in him. He not only covers our sins, he is the one and the only one that can fulfill the deepest longing in your heart. Because those longings are crying out for one who is infinitely glorious. There's only one who qualifies. Jesus. The overarching question that informs our section is, what does man gain? What profit is there? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Jesus himself once asked a a similar question. He said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Solomon's answer and Jesus' answer they gain nothing, it's heaven. Nothing. Nothing can be gained by trying to satisfy our souls, by filling our lives with the things of this world apart from God. But, what does it profit a man to lose his life for Jesus' sake and the kingdom of God? We can answer this question ourselves because we have the rest of the revelation of God written since Ecclesiastes. A man gains everything when he gives up his life for Jesus because Jesus is the one and the only one who fulfills every longing of the hearts of men. Once our selfishness has been overcome and our hearts are fully fully satisfied in Jesus and begin to overflow into selflessness directed towards others, then is this scripture fulfilled. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. All paths of longing, all paths of longing ultimately lead to Jesus. And in Jesus is found ultimate, and all-satisfying joy. Jesus at this very moment is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that we can say, in God's presence is fullness of joy. Because at His right hand is the person of Jesus Christ. In whom are found pleasures forevermore. And that's good news. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, Ecclesiastes is really hard, but we're really thankful that you inspired it to be written and that you've included it in your words because it. It helps us, it helps us to acknowledge and to kind of sift through the sometimes confused and twisted up and, and just the deep things that are going on inside of us. But we also thank you and we praise you for the fullness of the revelation of your word and the the perfect revelation of Jesus Christ because we recognize that in Him our sin is covered and our longings are ultimately fulfilled. So would you then, in light of that truth, would you cause our hearts now to to, to spill out, to overflow into joyful praise as we worship Him. That is, as we worship Jesus, our living hope. We ask these things in His blessed name. Amen.